so I want to say thanks for such a warm welcome. Uh, we moved here June the 1st, and it has been a great experience. Right out of the gate, before we even got here, there was a small group that cleaned our house, and that's when you know you've got true friends in the making, is when they clean your house for you and they don't even know you. Uh, the staff, Pastor Chris, and everybody on the team has been so embracing of us and our family especially. And I knew that this was, uh, the moment we knew that we were going to move here and accept uh, the opportunity to serve with y'all is uh, after we had had the interview weekend with Pastor Chris and met several of the team, met several of you, my wife's made this comment. She said, I feel like these are people that I trust my family with. And I knew we're going to Indiana. If you're new here, I want you to know that after the last four months, we have found that to be true. This is a church family you can trust your family with. So if you're looking for a church home or if you're a newcomer here, you might wanna stick around a while, get to know a few people, because I think you'll find that it was welcoming for you just like it is for me and my family. So just a little bit about us. We have four kids. One of them is at the University of Georgia, which we moved from. So we spent the last 20 years in Atlanta. My wife is a native of Atlanta. I am actually originally from Indiana. But two decades in the South, you're gonna hear some y'alls come out of me every now and then. <laughs> so I'm just letting you know, I'm, I'm caught in between. It's like 20 years in the South, I still sound like a Yankee to them. 20 years in the South, I sound like a Southerner up here. And I know I don't belong in Kentucky. So it's like I'm kind of <laughs> in between, still acclimating a little bit. We have two uh, teenage sons at Center Grove and a daughter at Walnut Grove, and they've been embraced so well, part of the student ministry here. It's been a fantastic start. Now, uh, we're going to open up and turn to Esther 1 and 2. So if you want to go ahead, I'm actually going to read out of Esther 2 a short little clip. And then we're going to cover quite a bit of Esther chapter 1 and chapter 2 as we begin this story. Because what's interesting about the story of Esther is how she started. And that's what we're going to cover in this clip of the, of the narrative, the historical narrative, is how she got started. And to be honest, she didn't have a great start um, by, let's say, uh, God's standards. It was kind of an interesting start, kind of a tumultuous start. So I don't know if you've ever had those moments where things didn't start out well for you, but I definitely had a rough start back in 1998 as I began my high school career. I'm aging myself. Some of you think I'm really young. Some of you think I'm really old just by that statement right there. But I started at North Montgomery High School in Crawfordsville, Indiana. And uh, yeah. My people. And so... There was this one particular day that I was obsessed with my appearance. And most of you who have ever been through puberty understand this moment. I woke up and looked in the mirror and I had this massive pimple right between my eyes. And when I say massive, uh, it was one of those that, you know, as a teenage boy, you know, just your immediate reaction is like, I got to pop that thing. And so I tried to pop that thing and it didn't pop. It just swelled bigger and got redder. And it was getting to the point where it was like protruding as such that I could see it out of my eye. It was blocking my vision. 
So I eat breakfast, and my wonderful mother just uh, says, oh, uh, don't touch that. Don't, don't try to pop that. And like, a little too late, you know, it's already grown huge. I get on the bus. The bus driver says hello, and then hello again to my little friend. And, I mean, it was a rough start. I get to school, and I, my head is down, and I'm trying not to see anyone. I'm trying to avoid people. I'm like the last one out of class, the, the, you know, the last one to get there so that I don't have to see people in the hallway. And the hallways are pretty empty because I'm trying to navigate, not to notice people, you know, and we couldn't wear hats, so I'm really like, my hair wasn't long enough to kind of cover it. And so one of my buddies, Chris Delano, uh, he he looks at me and he grimaces and he's like, oh man, what, what happened? It's so bad, he doesn't know it's a pimple. I mean, it's so huge, you know. He's thinking, did I get beat up or something? I mean, did you get punched in the face? Why is your face swelling so bad? And, and I was like, no, man, it's just a pimple gone bad. And, and he's like, oh, it looks like it hurts. And I'm like, you have no idea, you know, just physically, emotionally. This is a rough day. And I don't know if you've ever lived that kind of day. Now, that's a humorous story of of being a teenager, but when we look back at our past, we have those moments where we're not real proud of, that kind of scar us or that haunt us. And what do we do with that? What do we make of our lives when we are reminded, when we look in the mirror, we see all the pimples and we remember the scars, we remember the wounds. And so as we jump in the story of Esther, we're going to look at her rough start and see how God worked through that. And I think you're going to find that God can work through quite a bit of your bumps in the road, your messed up, your failures. So let's go ahead and like we do every week, if you have your Bibles, would you please stand as we read the word of God together. I'm going to be in Esther chapter two, and I'm going to start with verse five. This is the introduction of our main character, Esther. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiachin, the king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when, he, when her father and mother died. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Right out of the gate, as we read in chapter two, verses five and through seven, uh, we see that she has actual two names. Now, unless you've really studied this book, you may not realize that she has a couple of different names. It's significant that we hear all of her different names just in this one moment. Her Hebrew name is Hadassah. Hadassah, if we were to translate it into a modern day English word, uh, it would be myrtle. So if you know anybody named Myrtle, they're actually, they could track their roots back to a Hebrew name, Hadassah, which actually means rooted. So we don't name our young girls or even grandmas rooted. We name them Myrtle, which is a much prettier name, but Hadassah was the Hebrew name. But in order to cover up her Hebrew heritage, she takes on the name Esther. 
which most scholars believe it actually came from uh, the goddess of love named Ishtar that the Babylonians would have worshipped. So here, it's not a bad name change. If you're a lovely girl with a lovely figure and beautiful and you're going to be known for your beauty, why not take the name the goddess of love? Quite appropriate as we start our story. We're going to be introduced to several characters over the next couple of weeks. Uh, We're going to dive in and look at King Xerxes and why is he such a big deal. We're going to look at Mordecai. We're going to look at Esther. We're going to look at this bad guy, Haman. Uh, We're going to even look at some minor characters, Haggai and Vashti, even today. And i got to be honest, when you read the story of Esther, it sounds like a Disney princess story a little bit. But when we read this story, um, I'm not going to go Disney on you this morning. I'm actually going to go a little bit PG, uh, probably, let's just, I'll keep it at PG. It could go PG-13, but I'm just letting you know. I'm not going to give you the child's version, Sunday school version. I'm going to give you the, the Bible for grown-ups this morning because I want you to actually understand the significance of what is actually happening, happening in Esther 1 and Esther 2 because we don't live in a fairy tale world. We live in real life and the Bible lives in real life and the Bible is not some fairy tale. These things really happened. So to get the full context, let's look at Esther chapter one and go back a little bit about why she's introduced in chapter two. So it's gonna give us some historical context. So as I read this, in fact, I'll I'll go off the TV. As I read this, I'll just unpack it as we go. And so in Esther chapter one, it says, this is what happened during the time of Xerxes, the Xerxes who ruled over 120 provinces stretching from India to Cush. Let me just pause and just say, The Bible puts these details in. You see this throughout scripture so that you know this actually happened. This is rooted in historical evidence. Archaeological digs, other historical documents outside of the scripture can verify that's a real person, King Xerxes. This is a real place. This is a real time. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa, And then the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. So uh, if if you've ever seen like uh, uh, the movie Gladiator where the king's trying to, the new king, the new Caesar's trying to please all the people because he's new, he's only in his third year of reign. He wants the people to like him. He wants the people to approve of him. So what does he do to show how great he is? Let me throw a party. In fact, let me celebrate for 180 days as we're going to read. The military leaders of Persia and Medea. Who should I invite to my party? Let me make sure the military leaders of Persia are invited to the party because I want to treat them really well. I want them to like me. The princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. If you came to my house, it would take about 10 minutes. Hey, there's the basement, there's the upstairs, there's the backyard. Let's eat. 180 days. Now, I have seen episodes of MTP Cribs. I've even seen the old Robin Leach houses, uh, the rich and famous. Like, this is next level. Some of you, it might take more than 10 minutes, but I would say in about a day, we'd probably see 
all of your glorious belongings. 180 days. Just so you know, this is the grandson of Cyrus the Great, the Persian conqueror. So most of what he has accumulated was inherited from his grandfather. Okay, when these days were over, so now that you've seen how rich he is and how awesome he is, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace. Now we're really gonna party it up. For all the people from the least to the greatest, now it's, it's beyond just the military leaders and the princes. Everybody's now invited to the party. Everyone who was in the citadel of Susa, which is the capital city of Persia during this time, the garden had hangings of white and blue linen fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. They even had Pinterest back then. That's their Bible's version right there. <laughs> there were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of pophory, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. You think your hardwood floors are nice. I mean, this is next level. This would make a prince of Saudi Arabia looked like a pauper. I mean, this is next level wealthy. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other. And we have these goblets, and this makes me think of like, we have a gold ring around the top. We bought them from Arby's about 20 years ago when they were selling the holiday cups. I, I think this is probably a little nicer than that. The royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality, but the, by the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions. For the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. I mean, I've heard of frat parties and things like that, but this is quite the bender. Seven days, all you can drink. Aren't you glad that we don't live in a world that's obsessed with wealth and beauty? Aren't you glad we're not like this at all? What's interesting is what happens next in verse 10. Let's go to verse 10. Let's go to 10. I already did that one. There we go. Thank you. Queen Vashti refused to come. I think we missed a few verses, but I'm going to explain what happens. So Queen Vashti is requested by the king. He says, I want you to come, and, and what do you do when you're drunk? You do dumb things. And so if the slide guy can find verse 10, we'll read verse 10, but Queen, Queen Vashti has requested, I want you to come and entertain me and my guests. In fact, I want you to wear your royal crown. And let me help you read the Bible between the lines. It only says, wear your royal crown. It does not ask her to wear anything else but her royal crown. So, the verse we just read, Queen Vashti, are we ready for verse 10? There we go. Queen Vashti refused to come. She's like, no, I'm not gonna do that. How do you think the king responds, right? If the queen says, I'm not going to do that. I'm not let, gonna let you exploit me. I'm not going to be your toy. I'm not gonna be on display in front of you and all of your friends just so that you can win approval from them. I'm not gonna be used as a pawn like that. And the king became furious and burned with anger. See, 
Queen Vashti, which ladies, when she says Queen Vashti refused to come, y'all should respond, you go girl. Let's do that. Let's try that. Let me read this again. <laughs> Queen, Queen Vashti refused to come. I'm telling you, she's like the first like, lady we read about standing up for herself, which is interesting because Esther struggles with this a little bit later. So what you think might have happened actually happens. The king actually says, well, Vashti, I'm done with you. You're no longer queen. You're not going to do what I say. You're out. Some scholars believe that he actually had her executed pretty fierce, pretty rough. So then we get to Esther chapter two. Then we get to actually the scene where Esther enters into the story. So let's go to Esther chapter two. Let's look at verse two. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let's search, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Now, you know, the TV show, The Bachelor, this is King Xerxes edition right here. What do you do for a bachelor king? Like, king, we're gonna search the entire kingdom for the most beautiful young virgins we can find. We're gonna parade them before you and we're gonna let you pick the one that you want. And so then in Esther chapter two, verses eight through 12, uh, we jump to this. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had been in charge of the harem. She pleased him and won his favor. And this is a theme that you read throughout the beginning of Esther. Everybody's looking for approval. Even the king was looking for approval, the most powerful man. Now Esther, same situation, is looking for approval. The only one that doesn't is like Vashti. She's the only one that's like, no, I'm not gonna play that game. Immediately, he provided her with beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai, remember her family member, her adopted father, so to speak, uh, had forbidden her to do so. So she's playing the game. And every day he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Before a young woman's turn came to go into the King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women. 12 months of beauty treatments. I thought it was bad waiting for my wife on date night to get ready. (laughs) 12 months of beauty treatments. I mean, if you read on, you'll read that it was six months of just treatments with oil, six months of perfumes, and, and six months of all of this, this fabulous beauty treatments. It's unbelievable. So let's move on to verse 15, Esther 15. When the turn came for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted the daughter of his uncle, Abihel, to go to the king. She asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the 10th month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Again, see how specific it is? This actually happened. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women. 
because she was a knockout. And she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. See, this is how the world works. This is where it's gonna get a little personal to our world. And why we would study this scripture, why would we need to know this? Is this just a Bible lesson and understanding Esther or is there actually some truth uh, that we can apply here, that we can look at the mirror of scripture and, and have a reflection back and see our true selves and our true world and how things work. This is how the world works. We do what the world tells us to do and we win favor. We do what the world tells us to do and we win favor. Everything that we've just read is very common to our society today. I don't think that Esther is evil. I think she's making normal choices that all of us make throughout our lifetimes. We all tend to pursue the things that we are praised for. She played her part, she won the beauty contest, and so, so much of her story is familiar to us. The pursuit of wealth, the worship of beauty, the desire for status and fame, it's sometimes really hard to see God at work in all of this. You know what's interesting in the book of Esther? You can search the entire book word for word, and you know what one word you will not find? God. This is very unique to the book of Esther. We might even think, did the Old Testament editor get it wrong when it put this book in there because there is no mention of the name of God anywhere to be found. Now it's real curious, why are we studying this book? Because I think the author wants us to know, I think the Old Testament theme and the, the editor wants us to know, when you're in a world obsessed with appearances, you'll have a hard time finding God. What was true of Persia and King Xerxes is true of us today. Appearances mattered more than character. What you have matters more than what you are. Unless you get this credential, you're not going to be welcomed here or accepted. First you have to prove yourself and then maybe we'll approve of you. Dress like us, drive like us, dine like us, and you can be welcomed by us. Too often that we look at style and status and stuff to define us because that's how the world works. Our clothes and our cars and our clubs, our careers, if we're honest and we look in the mirror, they tend to define us and that's how we tend to define ourselves. This is how the world sees us. This is how we see the world. It's how we measure our worth. So the next part of the story in Esther 2, verses 19 through 20. When the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, but Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do. 
for she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when, she was, when he was bringing her up. See, Esther is still keeping that family secret. She's afraid of what the king might think. Mordecai is afraid of her not being accepted, afraid of what the king might think if he finds out that she's a Hebrew, that she's a Jew, that she's an Israelite. Because they know they're the religious minority by far in the capital city of Susa. They're not the ones who are welcomed. They don't have the right belief system in order to be accepted. Jews were not well accepted. They faced oppression. People sought to take their possessions and destroy them. You're gonna read about that from a guy, Haman, who's the villain of the story. He is like violently pursuing to take out all the Jews. Haman is like the Nazi in the story. It's bad. It's really bad. And so I think we can understand probably logically, like emotionally, why she's trying to cover it up because there's a real threat. There's a real oppression. But when we look at other stories in scripture, this isn't often how faith heroes um, become a faith hero. Because when you look at scripture, you look at stories of how Daniel stood up to all the king's requests and said, no, I'm not gonna eat that food that you want me to eat because that's against my belief system. That's against my faith. I don't wanna dishonor my God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, no, we're not gonna bow to that golden idol. We would rather be thrown into the fiery furnace. And yet that's not what we read here about Esther. I think she's a lot more like us, a lot more common to our experience because scholars pretty much agree on this. Esther here has compromised. Mordecai here has compromised. Her story starts out a little unheroic because as the story goes, she sleeps with a man she's not married to. She marries a man who's an unbeliever she's sold out. And this is one of the things I love about the scriptures is how honest and transparent they are about the flaws of the Bible characters because it makes it relatable to us because when we look at Daniel and we look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when we look at some of the great heroes of faith in scripture, well, we could, I could never be like that because we know we've already messed it up. We've already sold out. We've already compromised. We've already failed. There's no way I could be like that. But when we look at Esther and the terrible start that she gets off to, what we see is how God turns her into a faith legend even though she has already compromised her faith. By the end of the story, she's Braveheart, man. See, here's why this is important for us to hear today. This is what you and I need to know. God cares more about good endings than bad beginnings. See, when you think that God can't use you because of your past, if you think God can't use you because you've messed up, when you think God can't use you because you're not good enough even to be accepted by God or accepted by his church family, then maybe you've missed the message of Jesus. Because God cares more about good endings than bad beginnings. Jesus came to seek and save those who were lost and broken. Jesus said, it's the sick that need a doctor. This is why I'm here. 
I didn't come out to hang out with the people who think they've got it all together. They don't need me. I've come for the rest of you all. I got my y'all in. I've come for you who understand what it's like to have messed up so much you think you're unworthy of receiving any kind of goodness or blessing in your life. See, Jesus came for people who didn't ask for it, who don't deserve it. He came for people like us who will probably never fully appreciate everything that he's done. I think we need to know this, not just at the time we accept Jesus for the first time, but over and over and over again, we need to know God hasn't given up on you. Your neighbor needs to hear that. God hasn't given up on you. Would you tell your neighbor that right now? I'm gonna give you a moment. God hasn't given up on you. When we wake up in the mornings before all of our beauty treatments, when we look in the mirror and when we see our true selves, we see the nasty pimples that haunt us we tend to remember the things that we've royally messed up. There are chapters of most of our stories that we would like to erase and wish that they weren't there. And we have worked hard, most of us, worked really hard to kind of hide that and to cover it up. We've played the game. The only difference between us and Esther is that her compromise is recorded for all time in history. Like for 3,000 years, we can read about Esther. At least mine's not written down in scripture for everyone to read for the rest of their lives for eternity. But I need to know, and you need to know, God hasn't given up on you. Just like you, I have anxieties creep up in me every now and then that I'm afraid of what other people might think of me. Especially the last four months, sure, I'm sure all my family has dealt with that. Man, they're new, what are they gonna think of me? I better dress nice, I better smell good. Did you put deodorant on? Yeah. I can understand why we're trying to cover ourselves up because if you knew my secrets and I knew your secrets, we might have a hard time reconciling that because we all struggle with the fear and rejection. We all struggle with doubts. We all struggle with self-worth. And like Esther, it does feel dangerous, very dangerous to reveal what's on the inside of you. It feels risky to reveal the truth about the real you. All that image and status that we've built to define us, to protect us, to cover us up, to hide behind, that actually doesn't define us. It actually just hides the real you. I love how the Apostle Paul explains the message of Jesus and how we can be embraced and what God offers to all of us. In 2 Corinthians chapter five, this is the message version. Paul writes this, our firm decision is to work from this focus center. This is like the center of our lives. Like this is what we should be rooted in. This is what should be our self-security, our, our self-image, our worth. All is rooted into this. 
This is all that matters. This is all that should concern us. One man died for everyone. That puts everyone in the same boat. He included everyone in his death so that everyone could also be included in his life. A resurrection life. A far better life than people ever lived on their own. Because of this decision, we don't evaluate people by what they have or how they look. We looked at the Messiah that way once and got it all wrong, as you know. We certainly don't look at him that way anymore. Now we look inside and what we see is that anyone united with the Messiah gets a fresh what? Gets a fresh start. The Messiah, you get a fresh start. You are created new. The old life is gone. A new life. Virgins, look at it. All of this comes from the God who settled the relationship between us and him and then called us to settle our relationship with each other. God put the world square with himself through the Messiah giving the world a fresh start by offering forgiveness of sins. Church, families, whether you're new here or whether you've been here for a long time, you never stop needing a fresh start. This isn't just a one-time offer. It's an every morning kind of offer. Because guess what? If you haven't noticed, if you haven't lived long enough, you're gonna mess up again. You're gonna compromise again. You're gonna have anxieties and fears flare up. And you're gonna do something to win the approval of someone and, and you're gonna compromise in some area. And you're gonna need another fresh start and the beauty of the gospel and the beauty of what Jesus has to offer us and why he died is so that you can experience a fresh start every day. Some of you have been living with the weight of the burden of everything you're trying to hide, of everything that you're afraid someone might find out. And I'm here to let you know, you're with a bunch of people who've experienced the same thing, who eventually at some point, most of us, have decided to lay that down and receive Jesus because that's why he died for us, to take on those burdens, to take on those sins, to take on those things, those deep, dark secrets that we've been hiding and we've been holding, that we can release those to the true King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ, who says, you know, that old life is gone. You're invited into a new life. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to have a song. Then we're going to have some prayer counselors up front. And if you need a fresh start, you're invited to come and speak to one of those prayer counselors. Whether it's for the hundredth time or whether it's for the first time, you're welcome to come. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, we're so grateful for your great kindness, your great compassion your great love that you sent Jesus to come for those of us who were sick, who don't have it all together, who have compromised left and right, who've tried to hide behind all of the fake and phony stuff 
that we've designed our lives around, God. This morning, I pray that you give those who are carrying the weight the courage to step forward and find freedom from all their secrets, freedom from all their sins, that the old life can be gone and that they could experience a fresh start. We pray that you'd move in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus, amen. 